0: Hi, I'm Josh Pinner, and this is the Today's Faith Matters podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about the recent Supreme Court ruling on in-home worship in California, Beth Moore, and the book Jesus and John Wayne. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Today's Faith Matters. So last week, it would have been last Friday, April the 9th, Uh, On Friday evening, the Supreme Court issued a 5-4 to decision regarding uh, a ruling on in-home religious worship in California. Uh, Quoting from the SCOTUS blog right now, it says, a divided Supreme Court on Friday night granted a request by a California pastor to put COVID-related restrictions on in-home Bible study and prayer meetings on hold. The governor of California had put in place restrictions which uh, limited in-home worship which has become uh, increasingly popular over the last several years in America, but especially during the times of COVID um, and home worship. And also there's things like Bible studies that people do and have always done in their homes. And due to COVID, there was a restriction that it was limited to people from three homes, three households or less. It was approved by courts in California, was approved by the Ninth Circuit Court, before eventually coming to the Supreme Court, where it was overturned on Friday. Interestingly, that Friday was the same day that President Biden uh, decided to form a commission on uh, potentially recommending increasing the number of seats on the Supreme Court, but we'll save that for another day. So on Friday, the Supreme Court votes, and they vote five to four um, against what California had ordered to the people. Uh, In other words, they struck down the limitation that there could only be people from three households or fewer together for in-home worship. Now the first thing that is striking to me about that, and I'm happy that the court made the decision that they made, excuse me, obviously it's the right decision. But the fact that it was five to four and not nine to zero um, is amazing. Over a year into COVID, and, and just just to be fair, I've taken COVID seriously. This, I've always thought COVID is serious. People need to take it seriously. People need to respect the virus. It can obviously be very, very destructive. But we are now over a year into this. We have a vaccine that over 100 million people have had. We've had tens of millions of people who have had the virus. And California still wants to put this type of restriction in place on people after all this time the amount of control that they're trying to exert, especially when the jury is still very much out and if those steps even work, I would argue that they don't. I'm not a doctor, I'm not an immunologist, but I think a reasonable thoughtful person can question if they do. When we look at how wide open uh, Florida and Texas, very populous states have been, um, and that they've not turned into apocalyptic disaster areas, but states that are blue states like California, New York, want to continue to put these heavy-handed restrictions on people. And I do question that. Again, I'm not questioning if COVID is serious. It is. But whether or not these lockdown restrictions actually work when we've been dealing with the society for months and months, again, I think a, a reasonable person can question that. I remember last summer there were stories about the disaster that was awaiting Florida because they were less strict than a lot of the blue states. And that never happened. Uh, Florida's done fantastically well with I believe the second oldest state in America. I think Maine is technically older, but doesn't have near the population that Florida does. Obviously lots of people move to Florida for the purpose of retirement. They have a lot of older communities in Florida and Florida's done a great job. Again, they've taken it seriously. I think that's part of how the narrative gets fun that because Florida doesn't do the same things that California or New York does, it's because they don't take it seriously. Now, I think they do take it seriously. And you hear Governor DeSantis talked about it. They, they do. But we come to Florida, I'm sorry, we come to California and this recent Supreme Court ruling, again, five to four. Again, it's amazing to me in the United States of America that a state could put limits on how many people a person can have in their own private residence. And certainly, and significantly, there's the issue of religious freedom, which was a large part of the view of the uh, majority opinion which was justices uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, along with Alito and Clarence Thomas. Justice Roberts did not issue an opinion on this, but he did dissent, which in itself is also interesting. It was interesting when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last year, and we heard that the Supreme Court was going to be this 6-3 to three majority. It's really not. Um, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer were uh, wrote the dissenting opinion. I think Kagan technically wrote it, and the others uh, agreed with her. So the majority opinion pointed to this being, obviously, a... Religious freedom issue. They also pointed to the fact that you have all sorts of businesses that are open in California: grocery stores, movie theaters, restaurants, hair salons, sporting events, where you have people from far more than three households in the same space. Uh, and that they can do that, and people can have that many people, you know, more than three households in their own residence for a Bible study. The dissenting opinion argued that the limit of three households congregating in somebody's residence was not religious discrimination because the same rule applied for secular activities. Um, And they argued that while other businesses might be open and might have more people patronizing that business, that it's a, a bigger facility People oftentimes are in certain, you know, like a grocery store for a shorter time span where you're walking around and moving around compared to maybe sitting at a table with other people. But either way, just the, the insanity that a state can try to tell people how many people they could have in their own home to be regardless of if it's religious or secular activities, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just somebody who believes in freedom. And again, after all that we've been through with this virus, at this point in the game, to try to place those limitations on private citizens is, uh, to me, that's a sad commentary. Certainly, it gets pointed to as a First Amendment issue in terms of freedom of religion. I would also argue it's a First Amendment issue in terms of freedom of assembly. Um, So Happy the Supreme Court made the decision that they made. Again, disappointed that it was five to four instead of nine to zero. Second story I want to talk about today that came up last week, Beth Moore. One article I think was correct in saying that she might be the most famous evangelical women's teacher in America. I think that's and it's pretty hard to dispute. Uh, last week came out in criticism of the biblical view of complementarianism. Just as a point of clarity, complementarianism is the view that men and women biblically are created differently and with different roles and functions. And part of complementarianism is the view that um, men can have certain roles in churches that women cannot specifically referring to pastors and elders. And there's kind of a spectrum of complementarianism, and different churches have different points of view within that spectrum. Some churches still will allow women to preach, but not be the pastor. Um, Again, there's a range. That's contrasted with egalitarianism, which is the view that men and women basically have interchangeable biblical roles. Both views agree, just for clarity, that men and women are equally created in the image of God and are of equal value as image bearers. But Beth Moore has been a complementarian throughout her career, and she might still be. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, But she posted a couple of tweets last week where she was apologetic, and she's been a little bit more critical as of late of the uh, evangelical culture and community. And uh, let me find Beth's tweet here. Last week, Beth Moore said... Let me be blunt. When you functionally test complementarianism, a doctrine of man, it's in all caps, as if it belongs among matters of first importance, yeah, as a litmus test for where one stands on inerrancy and authority of scripture, you are the ones who have have misused scripture, you went too far. I don't think her entire criticism is baseless. I'll get to that in just a moment. I do disagree where she calls complementarianism a doctrine of man. Uh, if you believe in complementarianism, you believe it's a doctrine of the Bible and therefore a doctrine of God. And the uh, religion news service article, which I consider one of the best uh, religious news associations, news services in the country, um, they mentioned that they had emailed Beth Moore for clarification because she did issue these uh, via tweet Religion News Service says, in an email to Religion News Service, more didn't go quite as far as to say she's entirely abandoned complementarianism, which in itself is interesting, but she no longer sees it as essential. Now I would agree it's not essential in the standpoint of like, what brings salvation to a person? I believe that you're saved and you're justified through Christ, you are born again through the Holy Spirit, justified in Christ, sanctified in Christ, adopted in Christ, you are made holy and righteous in Christ, uh, and it's his work alone. And yes, we're not justified by being complementarian or egalitarian. So um, I'd agree it's not essential in terms of salvation, but it is important in terms of how churches function and operate and what churches do believe. Um, if you have a church that's complementarianism and a church that's egalitarian, those are two different views. Um, and I mean, a church ultimately needs to decide one way or the other. She says it's not essential. Again, it's not essential for salvation, but it is practically essential for how a church actually operates and functions. Again, I, I do find it interesting that Moore did not actually go so far as to actually say complementarianism is wrong, which is how I think some people are taking her tweets. Again, quoting from Religion News Service, uh, Beth Allison Barr, a Baylor University historian and author of the Making the Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, likened more to the biblical Joshua commanding the people to shout so the walls of Jericho fall down. She just shouted, said Barr of Moore. This is going to be the beginning of the end of complementarianism. I think that's wishful thinking, on um, Barr's uh, perspective. Um, I'd said at the beginning of this segment that in some ways I, I think there is some legitimacy to what Moore is saying and I'll say it pointed out in, in this way is that you have this whole evangelical industry. It influences publishing and books, conferences, music, increasingly movie movies and other media. And over the past generation, certainly uh, a major focus of that has been based in complementarian theology. It largely influences books on marriage, on dating even, on raising families. So it is very influential. And not all of that writing is helpful. I would agree with that. I don't know if that's the point that Moore is making. Um, So, I can agree that there has been a lot of damage and destruction done in our culture um, with people who oftentimes don't have particularly good theological training or background writing popular level books. Let me say it this way. There's never been a time in history when there was more easy access to biblical teaching. Obviously, the Bible you can get for free on your phone. Books are cheap these days. Sermons, pretty much every church in the country has sermons online, almost always for free. Uh, You have all sorts of other lectures and conferences that you can find on YouTube for free. That we've never had a time where there was so much access to knowledge and teaching. Meanwhile, the biblical literacy in America is horrible. I think back to the uh, State of the Church survey that Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research do every other year. Last year's survey, as a survey of professing Christians, professing evangelical Christians in America. And when asked the question in last year's survey, Jesus Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Like two thirds of the people agreed with that statement. That's a heretical view. Jesus is not created. Now, that might seem like some like, nuance that's insignificant. It's very significant because you're getting the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ, fundamentals of Christianity, wrong in agreeing with that statement. Jesus is not a created being. And so, so much of the popular Christian media that's created in this industry is stuff, again, that focuses on practicality. Again, marriage, family, dating, how to to spend your money, people like Dave Ramsey. Um, But all the while, we're basically illiterate about the Bible itself and what it teaches. And I think there's certainly pastors, sadly, who, again, oftentimes don't have a great grounding in theology or biblical studies. Not every pastor goes to seminary. Um, And one of the hobby horse topics is... Complementarianism. Now, again, I think it is a biblical view, but I think it can be spun in unhealthy ways. Biblical complementarianism can be attached to misogynistic views or to other unbiblical views about marriage. Uh, The book Jesus and John Wayne, which we'll talk about here at the end of the show, she gives lots of examples of. Christian books that have been written over the last few decades, which talk about the importance of of women sort of enticing their man and always looking attractive and really, you know, making it a point. There's nothing wrong with a woman deciding to do that, but to act like that's gospel and like, that's like the the biblical thing that a woman has to be hot. Um, So yeah, I I think it can definitely be taken to very unhealthy places. Um, Now, the way that Beth Moore just fires off a couple of tweets criticizing complementarianism, I don't know if that's really the most helpful approach. Again, she can obviously write. She's written about a thousand books in Bible studies. Um, I I think there's a more nuanced way to to really approach the complexities and intricacies of the issue in a a thoughtful and meaningful way uh, than just calling it a doctrine of man, which, again... If Beth Moore is still complementarian, she she does not believe it's a doctrine of man. You can believe a doctrine is a biblical doctrine without believing thats that it is a first-tier theological doctrine, as she says it's not. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how that continues to, to develop. Again, I do disagree with the Baylor professor who says that this is the beginning of the end of complementarianism in America. No, it's not last thing I want to talk about in this episode is the book Jesus and John Wayne written by Kristen DeMay came out last year it's been um, I think pretty popular maybe more in academic circles Uh, but I wanted to give a a brief critique of it because I think it's actually a very very relevant book with a lot of the subjects we're talking about complementarianism I think uh, there's been so many different church abuse scandals lately that we've seen I think it addresses it, it talks about some of those issues so I'll give my, my pros and cons of the book, Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, Kristen DeMay is a history professor at Calvin College in Michigan. Um, she is not an evangelical Christian, at least not today. Um, she writes the book as a critique on American evangelicalism. I think it's a well-researched book. I think it's a well-written book. I think a lot of things she says are very interesting. Um, I think a lot of her critiques are fair. I, I gave a couple examples a moment ago about the way in which she talks about complementarianism, I do believe in complementarianism. Think it's biblical, but it can also be, you know, distorted, sadly too often, to ways that are unhelpful. And she does talk a lot about the the major Christian industrial complex, the Christian industry. Um, so I think it's helpful in some of her critiques. My negatives of the book. She's not an evangelical, um, and she's writing a book about evangelicalism, and I think it comes across at times as kind of a tirade, because the whole book is criticizing it. I don't really see anything in the book that ever gives any any credence to evangelicalism, any credit to the vast good that it does throughout the whole country. Um, the way it influences people for good and to live godly lives, that there are thousands upon thousands of good, biblically-based, healthy, evangelical churches in America. I don't know if she even agrees with that statement, but if she does, it's never really talked about in the book. It's all negative. Everything she says about evangelicalism is looked at in a negative light, and she's liberal. But I don't feel like she is, uh, is balanced in her approach at looking at the two. Um, because she talks about various scandals that have happened um, in the non-evangelical world, and there's no real criticism or uh, judgment of those. She talks about, uh, to give an example, she talks about Republican presidential candidates going back to like Eisenhower, and most of them were not especially religious people, which I think is true. I also don't think most of those Men really painted themselves to be super religious. Uh, yeah, they might have given different speeches or whatever in you know conferences that a lot of religious people went to. But I mean, that's part of that's just it's politics. Um, but then she talks about Hillary Clinton, and she calls Hillary a devout Christian. I'm not the judge of Hillary Clinton's heart. But the fact that she'll hammer away at evangelicalism and act like Hillary is just this Bible-believing, like, just can't get enough of the gospel. I question that. In the book, Dimea gives a, a lot of history of the development of evangelical culture and oftentimes that has been tied to sort of traditionally masculine views and stereotypes and ideals in America and she traces it back to like the World War II era and after that. Um, Again I think the history that she talks about is pretty interesting. She talks about some of these uh, popular ministries who have had different scandals and I agree that it's a travesty that far too often things get overlooked. Um, that's why I do try to write about a lot of these different scandals that have happened recently on my blog, because I do think that we're called to holiness and that that's important to, to keep an eye on. So again, I, I do agree with a lot of points that she makes in the book. I just wish she could give a little bit more uh, credence to the evangelical movement in America as opposed to pretty much just hammering away and going on and on and on as to why it's so bad. Um, because I feel like what's going to happen with that book is I think it'll probably largely be preaching, preaching to the choir. People who are a little bit more liberal-leaning Christians will read it. And they'll be like, yes, this is perfect. This is um, because a lot of them hate evangelicalism. And I think a lot of people who are evangelical will probably end up not reading the book at all, because it hammers away. So extensively, um, but as for my opinion, I liked it. I thought it was worth reading. That's this episode of today's Faith Matters. Once again, thank you so much for watching. Tried to do something a little bit different today with uh, talking about some of the major stories that happened this past week, and um, I can just love talking about these things. And I think it's so important to to pay an, pay attention to what's going on in the culture and society. So. Have a blessed day and a blessed week, and we'll talk to you soon, Lord willing. Thank you.